I want to introduce to you from Superior, Wisconsin, Chuck L. <laughs> yeah, we're bad. I just got to get my area cleaned off here because if as you're going to see, I jump around a little bit and I don't want to knock anything over. I had to drink half my water so I don't spill that when I pick it up. I got written down here who I'm supposed to thank. Um, where the hell did Jack go? <laughs> you know, when you, got, when you alcoholics are up here speaking, they all sit up here. And when the hell on gets up here, they desert it like rats deserting a ship. They're all sliding away from me here. I'll be standing by myself in a couple minutes. Oh, I just got told by my higher power to turn the mic up. So, <laughs> Thank you. That's all nonsense. I'm more than one higher power. Um, I want to thank Bob for inviting me here today. I want to thank you alcoholics for inviting Elanon here today. And um, I want to thank you once again, people of Kentucky, and I love Kentucky. We've been to Paducah, we've been to Rough River, we've been to Lexington, so I figure we've covered the state pretty well. Uh, I was stationed at Fort Knox. The government paid for my uh, residency in, in Kentucky for about eight weeks back in the early 60s, and I love the state, and I always have, and I'm glad to have every opportunity to come back here. Um, I, I'm truly grateful for the Elanon program in Kentucky. I, I know some people in the audience. Uh, Marietta was the delegate. I was uh, my last year was her first year, and I've uh, met some of the other people before also. Um, the friendships that we develop in Elanon, although they're not intense, are just so lasting and they're, they're so genuine that when you go someplace and you see somebody you haven't met for years, it just takes right off and you just feel warm and you feel part of a family. My wife Sandy sends her hellos to you people. Some of you people know Sandy. She's been uh, in Kentucky a couple of times. Uh, she wasn't able to come down this weekend, um, and I'll try to get into that later on. I, I'd like to say that I feel sorry for Sandy, but right now she's battling a blizzard, and I'm not. I'm here in the basking in the warmth of the Kentucky winter, and she's up north, and probably got the truck and four-wheel drive battling her way back from Minnesota, so... That's the way it goes, I guess. Some of us have hard times and some of us don't. Um, you know, I got crap written down here and I don't know what it means. Okay, I said hello from Sandy. I think, uh, thank, um, Marietta. Uh, okay. Um, I'm looking at this banner back here and it says our common welfare should come first. It doesn't say that in four words, but basically that's what it's about. And I think of alcoholism as a family disease. And we heard last night uh, Scott talk, and we heard today when Linda talk, and you're going to hear when I talk about a family illness called alcoholism. And it's just, not just the, the alcoholics that are suffering from alcoholism, but the whole family and those involved with the alcoholics suffer from that disease. And um, I think it was uh, Albert Myers that used to say it's a disease that you don't have to have to die from. And isn't that the truth? And, and, and the people that suffered living with alcoholism didn't necessarily suffer from the alcoholic. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that today. It's been my story that my kids suffered under me, and I'm not alcoholic. I was just somebody that was affected like they were, and I, and I took out my the, the causes and effects of alcoholism on me on those kids. Um, let's see if I got everybody else down here. Oh, yeah, I was talking about this banner back here. You know, they talk about uh, uh, the common welfare, and if you're new in Elanon, at some point in time, if you stick around, you're going to go to a meeting, and you're going to hear somebody talking about putting the, the uh, traditions 
into a family context. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, I didn't come to Al-Anon to learn steps. It wasn't my fondest dream. My first Al-Anon meeting, I didn't say, well, I'm going to go and learn the steps. I didn't know he had steps. After I was in Al-Anon for a while, I didn't know anything about the traditions. I didn't come to Al-Anon to learn traditions. I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know he had them. But now I look back on this, and when I heard first heard somebody say, use the traditions in your family life, I didn't understand it. But just take a look behind me at what that says. Just think if you put above there, in our family, our common welfare should come first. If I could put that to work in my life, if I could have done that 21 years ago, if I could have done that, how much would I have had to continue? How hard would I have had to work if I could have just thought of other people first rather than myself? If I could have thought of us as a family rather than look what's happening to me, look what she's doing to me, look what those kids are doing to me, look what I don't have because of what I have to go through. I didn't think of the family as a unit. I thought of it as a persecution towards me. And it took you people to get me out of that. And that tradition is one of the ways we do that. Personal progress for the greatest number depends upon unity. What a strong statement, not only for our Al-Anon family groups in this, in this world, but for our family at home sitting around that table. I think it's a wonderful statement of freedom. Okay, I'll get off that soapbox, I guess. <laughs> Enough of that. Um, Jack said he was an untreated Al-Anon. Is he out here someplace? He's probably hiding under a rock somewhere. Um, you know, I was listening to a speaker one time, and, and, and this guy kept talking about my Al-Anon. My Al-Anon treated me this way, and my Al-Anon treated me that way. And, you know, Al-Anon's a recovery program. You know, you can be nuts, and that's what Jack is. If he's, not an, if he's an untreated Al-Anon, he's just nuts. But if you're not an Al-Anon, you're just nuts. You can be an Al-Anon and be nuts, then you're Al-Anon nuts. But Al-Anon is a recovery program. So if I'm crazy and my wife's going to AA and I'm not going to Al-Anon, I'm not an Al-Anon. I don't suffer from Al-Anonism. Al-Anonism is a recovery program. So therefore, if you think I'm crazy, I'm Al-Anon crazy. I'm not just nuts, I'm Al-Anon crazy. Um, i got to tell you, it's 20 minutes to 12. i got to tell me it's 20 minutes to 12. The Ohio River is a beautiful river. God, I love it. I go fly over that thing coming in here, coming into Louisville. And it's just fantastic. I remember being in the service, and we used to go down by that river and look at that beautiful river. I live on the largest body of water, fresh body of water in the world, Lake Superior, and I'm just in love with it. The moods and 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 just the different colors and and the times of day, and so much is affected. It creates its own weather patterns, and it's it's always the same body of water. You know, it's a body of water, but. It looks different, it acts different, it makes you feel different, it's vibrant, it's like it's alive, you know, and I like the kind of a, um, or a metaphor or analogy for, for life, you know. I'm, I'm me, I'm me like I was 57 years ago. I've got a few more wrinkles and a little bit more hair and I wear glasses, but I'm, I'm me. I was, I was chucked back then and I'm chucked now. And my life's been affected by some outside influences and it's been affected by me and I'm still chucked but I'm different than I was. Uh, kind of like a paradox, I guess. Anyway, this Ohio River is flowing down there, and these uh, three people, these three alcoholics, come up to the river, and they're standing there looking at this river. And it was in the spring of the year, and this river is really turbid and flowing, and just there was debris floating down the river and some ice chunks and stuff, and they're standing in front of that river, 
And first alcoholic looks up in the sky to his higher power and says, God, make me strong enough and, and courageous enough and, and have enough fortitude to cross this mighty river. I need to get to the other side. So God looks down at him and thinks, well, that's not too much of a, not too much to ask. So he turns his legs into these mighty, huge, muscly things, looks like tree trunks, like, like oak tree trunks. And this guy, the alcoholic, he steps down into the river and the debris is crashing up against him and the foam is pushing him and the current's pushing him and he, he wades and he stumbles and he gets to the other side after many hours and just collapses on the bank of the river. Thank you, Lord, for getting me here. Second alcoholic looks at that and he says, God, I ask that you would make me strong and powerful and mighty, strong enough to cross this river, this mighty river. So God looks down and thinks, well, that's too much of a problem. So he makes him strong. He gives him these huge, incredulous arms, just big muscles, biceps. And he provides him with a boat with strong oars made out of ash so he could cross that river. He puts the boat in the water and he's pulling and rolling across the river and the waves are coming and he's battling the current because it's trying to push him downstream and he's trying to keep the boat pointed in the right direction and the ice flows are beating on him and he's getting overcome with these waves and finally he gets to the other side and he collapses on the bank next to the other alcoholic. So grateful to be there. Well, the third alcoholic standing there watching this and she says, Lord, please give me the courage and give me the strength and the wisdom to get to the other side of this river. And he looks at her and he thinks, well, that's not too hard a problem. He turns her into an Alanon. She pulls out her map, looks at it, walks up three blocks and crosses the bridge to the other side. <laughs> I usually don't, <laughs> I usually don't tell jokes when I'm, when I'm, I mean, you know, pre-done jokes when I'm telling my story, but I, I thought that one was pretty cool. Um, I, I grew up in a family that drank. Uh, I whether the alcoholics or not, I don't know. I don't have to say that. I don't have to deal with that. It's just maybe they were, maybe they weren't. My life was affected by somebody else's drink, and that's all I know. Uh, we grew up in Superior, Wisconsin, about 25,000 people and 90 bars. It wasn't far hard to find a bar. I just We lived in, in the north end of town, wrong side of the tracks. Sandy and I grew up close to one another uh, in, in uh, geography. We're only about six blocks apart, different neighborhoods, so we didn't know each other. My Saturdays, my Fridays was usually spent going with my folks to the neighborhood tavern. Back in those days, they had, like, family taverns. You went there and you enjoyed yourself. My brother and I drank great pot and played pool, and it was a blast. And my dad sat at the bar and talked railroad with the guys, and my mom sat in the booth with the women. I don't really know what they talked about, but back in those days in Superior, Wisconsin, the women couldn't sit at the bar. It was against the law. If a cop came in and saw a woman sitting at the bar, he'd sit up, give her a ticket. So <laughs> you women think you got it rough now. Just think back then. You had to sit in the booth where you belonged. You know? <laughs> That's how far the women have actually come. Um, but that, it was a good life. I didn't mind it. I, I, I looked at drinking as uh, it was okay. My folks had fun. They enjoyed themselves uh, when they weren't smuggling margarine. <laughs> That's a, I'm surprised he brought that up. It's an interesting story. It kind of threw me off even, you know. Wow, the margarine, margarine smuggling. Um, anyway, that's the way I grew up, thinking drinking was okay. I went into service when I was 17 years old. I graduated from high school. I ended up in Missouri and then here in Kentucky and Virginia, and then I ended up overseas for a couple of, couple of years. Came home, 
I wasn't 21 yet, and in Wisconsin at that time they had a 21-year-old drinking law. And uh, out in the county, out of the city limits, we used to have what was called beer bars. And they only served beer. And if they only served beer, you could drink when you were 18 years old. So a lot of kids used to jump in cars and go out in the county and drink. And consequently, on the way back, a lot of them were killed. We were missing a lot of people because of the 18-year-old uh, drinking law there. Uh, Sandy was engaged to a guy. Him and three other people were in a car coming back from the county, and they crested a hill at great speed and ran head-on into another car, and all three of them in the one car were killed. And uh, Sandy was fortunate that she wasn't with him. She had to have an argument with her boyfriend that night and didn't go with. So that's how close it comes. That's all the way it used to be. And we used to go out in the county and just drink. Uh, one particular night, we're out. <clears throat> a friend of mine asked me if I'd go out with him and, and have a couple beers. Sure, we'll go have some beers. So we went out in the county to this college bar. I never went to college. I just hung around the college bars. <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, we went out to this, this college bar, and, and uh, we're sitting there having a couple of beers. And, and this Dale's girlfriend comes in with another woman. And... Well, you know, I wasn't experienced. I mean, I was, I was like, I was so bashful and shy and everything. And when, I, when it came to talking to other girls, I mean, I looked at them. And back in those days, when I was growing up, the girl's skirts and her anklets were about 10 inches apart. So that's all the leg you could see on a girl, you know. And I, I used to look at that and lust after that, you know. <laughs> nice 10 inches, you know. And, and uh, anyway, I, you know, I was insecure, and I never did feel good about myself. And, and here comes Nancy with, with this girl, you know, and she was. They sat down at the booth that we were sitting in, and she was sitting across from me. And, and I knew I was going to have to talk. I couldn't sit there and not talk. I just hoped I didn't drool or I didn't have something hanging out of my nose or something. You know, I just, that's, that's the way I felt. And so uh, we started I was starting to try to talk, and I couldn't remember her name, and oh, geez, you know. And, and then she did something. I, no, I don't know if this was an accident or not, but uh, it was Sandy, by the way. I have to say that, too. Um, she touched my leg with her foot. <laughs> my God, I had dreams about that for probably six weeks. <laughs> Woo! I mean, back in 1964, I was like going all the way, you know. <laughs> I thought, man, oh man, I got this one. But we started dating. We double dated a couple times, and then we started going out by ourselves. And we just never were apart. That was uh, that was 1966 when we met, and we got married in, in uh, January 1967. And January 21st, we were in uh, Midland, Texas, at their conference, and we were we celebrated our 34th anniversary there. And they gave her a corsage and took us out to dinner. It was just fantastic, you know, to to be there. And, and I, when I got up to tell my story, you know, I shared that part and I got tears in my eyes. I got teary-eyed and everything, you know. And it's nice. I mean, 34 years. And, and she's my best friend and my confidant. And, and uh, I love her dearly. And, and I, I can't really picture life without her. Although in sobriety, about 10 years ago, we almost did separate. And I say that now, and I want to say that up front, because uh, we're not Mr. and Mrs. Allen on an AA. We had our problems, and, and most of the problems came from this guy right here, not from that alcoholic. They came from the non-alcoholic. And the way I interpreted my program, and the way I interpreted my higher power, and the way I interpreted the steps. Um, the, third steps the third step talks about turning our, our life over to God. 
and, and I have, I said it, but I didn't do it. I, I, I read the literature and I interpreted it my way, and I almost lost my marriage because of it. And I'm here today to tell you that I'm so grateful for this program. Somebody mentioned already this this week about uh, going down a road and, and things happen in God's time and it happens in God's will. And, and I truly believe that incident or that that life that I was living so uh, in Al-Anon for 10 years and living that kind of a life, I needed to do that to get to where I am today. Um, Sandy and I are blessed. And I'll get in touch base on that a little while uh, later. Uh, Sandy says... You know, I, I, I call her all those things, and Sandy says, and Chuck's my safe sex partner. So, <laughs> kind of interesting. Um, okay, so we're married. Nine months after we get married, we have a baby. Thirteen months after that, we have another baby. And uh, Sandy turns 21 in that in that span of time. She's 21. She was 19 when we got married, and, and uh, I was 23. And we were kids. We had never actually been independent. She ran away from her mother's house. I, I drove my car up to her house one day and I saw her on one end of the headboard and what I assumed was my mother-in-law on the other end of the, head of the headboard in the house pulling it back and forth like a cross-cut saw because Sandy was moving out. My mother-in-law didn't want her to go and the, and the headboard was going back and forth in the doorway. You know, Sandy comes from the alcoholic home. and I, I guess I should have known that, but I didn't know anything about alcoholism at the time. Um, she started going out. So I started going out with her. And we started arguing and fighting, and you know, that old saw, how that goes. Well, then I started where I didn't want to go out anymore. I thought, well, I'll stay home, and then there won't be the arguing. And uh, well, we've got a couple kids by this time, and I'll sit home and watch the kids while she goes out. And I never equated it with alcoholism. I never equated it even with drinking a lot. I just thought I had a wild wife, and she didn't know enough to stay home. And, and if I was stronger and more forceful, I could force her to become a better person. I could change her if I was a, if I was strong enough to do that, but I wasn't. And, and my self-esteem that I didn't have was even further out of reach of me. Um, uh, one particular night, I'm sitting home, and the two kids are already in bed. And... Uh, now, Sandy's an alcoholic, and she she's admits to that, and, and the, she doesn't mind me saying that. She's a recovering alcoholic, and um, I don't talk about her drinking. I don't talk about her uh, behavior to belittle her in any way. What I want to let you uh, find out about is my behaviors to an alcoholic situation, the ins- my insanity towards alcohol. And what, what alcoholism brought to me in my life and what I brought to my family. Um, Sandy's off partying someplace. And I knew where she was, or I figured I knew where she was. She was with the girl that caused her to start this drinking in the first place. It was all her fault that she drank because she didn't hang around with this girl. She wouldn't drink. <laughs> and so she's probably at her apartment and I look at the watch. It's about three o'clock in the morning. The kids have been sleeping for a while. So I think I'll just go out and see where she's at. See if she's there. So I read those two kids home in bed by themselves and I jump in my car and drive down the road a couple of miles. Sure enough, the lights are on in the apartment. And I, all the way down there, I was, I was considering how I was going to go in there and grab her around her throat and drag her right out the door or down the stairs and into the car. I got there, I looked at those lights and I couldn't do anything. I sat there for a while, hating her, hating myself and turned around and went home. You chicken. You, you crazy thing. You, you leave your kids alone and you go looking for your wife and when you find her you haven't got the guts to go in and get her. 
You deserve whatever you get. You are worthless. That's what I would tell myself. And that wasn't an isolated situation. That happened time and time again. There, there, was, there was many, many crazy things that went on in our life. We had a dance one time, and, and uh, I know you all caught sitting in the audience today. You're probably not going to understand this, because by the time this has happened to you, you're too damn drunk to know it's happened anyway. So believe this is what happens. There'll be a few heads nod when I tell you this. We're sitting up in this dance hall, and we're having a couple of beers in these flimsy plastic glasses, and, and uh, Sandy got drunk, and, and uh, when an alcoholic has a certain amount of beer or booze in her, and she drank Old Milwaukee too, by the way. I heard Old Milwaukee entered. That was her booze of choice. But after a time, the alcoholics, well, all of a sudden, their eyelids just kind of go swing, and they kind of hang halfway down. And then they do this stuff. They look underneath them like this. They're looking around. And that was my that was my signal that craziness was about to happen. <laughs> now I wasn't I wasn't well versed in alcoholism. I didn't know anything about alcoholism other than they all were down skid row. And, and but I knew enough about when her eyes got that way, she was going to get nuts, and we're leaving. So Sandy fits right about in here. And when we danced, she would push me around the dance floor, and we never bumped into anybody. We'd play these waltzes, and I was just like Fred Astaire, and she would guide me, she would lead me around the dance floor. And it was so glorious, and so we, we just did so well, you know. I don't know how she ever did that. It looked like a tug pushing a string of barges down the river, you know. <laughs> I'd get out there, and I'd trip and stumble and fall, and, and I never would dance. She taught me how to polka one time. She said, one, two, three, bend your knee. She said, that's all you got to do. So that's what I did, and she fell on the floor laughing at me. Needless to say, we never polka again. But this time, I, I told our friend, I says, uh, you get Sandy's purse, because we're getting out of here. So I danced Sandy this time. I led, I danced her across the floor to the stairs. I danced her down the stairs. I danced her to the car. And I put her in the car. And no protest, you know, she just went along with me. And Karen threw the purse in the back seat, and I took her home. And then I did something that I always did. I threw her over my shoulder, and I carried her in the house. And I walk past the babysitter, and the babysitter goes, Hi, Chuck. Hi, Sandy. You know, And then uh, I carried her up the stairs up to the second floor bedroom, and I tucked her in bed. And, and then I brought the babysitter home, basically leaving the kids with a passed out person. And uh, sometimes I went back to the party, sometimes I came home. Uh, there were other times when I would come home, and I'd think, Well, Sandy's, Sandy's my wife. And I have certain rights, and I take advantage of that passed out body. And I'm not proud of that. I, I, I find it disgusting. But at the time, I did it. And I thought I had a right to do that. And I, I've made amends for her since for that. And I've had to make amends to myself for that. But you know what happens in this fellowship? I mean, here I've got this, that crap in my gut. I don't feel good about it to start with. I come into Al-Anon, and I had conveniently pushed it aside someplace where you don't really think about it all the time. I'm at a meeting, and somebody tells me about alcoholism, alcoholism faces, or Elanon faces alcoholism. So I buy the book. I'm reading the book. And in one of those stories, a guy is writing about taking advantage of his passed out body of his wife. Holy smokes, you mean somebody else did that. And now when I share my story, there's people that come up to me and say that happened to them. So we're not alone. And that's the wonderful thing about this program. I could take that crap out. I could take that, that liability and use it for an asset. When I, for the guys that I sponsor, when I talk to them about that. 
It's definitely not an isolated incident, which I thought it was. Um, we continued on in our alcoholic uh, uh, mess for, for many years. We had talked about separating, and we had talked about not separating. I remember one time we were sitting on the couch facing each other, and Sandy says something about, uh, well, I says, well, why can't you just come home at night? And she said, Chuck, I don't know why I can't come home at night. I said, why can't you do what you promise? You make promises to me, Sam. And she says, I, I don't know. I don't know why I can't keep those promises. She said, the only thing I know is that I can't tell you I'm going to be home. I can't tell you I'm going to keep the promises I make. I can't tell you I'm not going to drink so much. And we sat there and held one another and cried, knowing nothing about alcoholism, knowing nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous or al We were so close, so close but yet so far away. Maybe we weren't ready yet. Maybe God wasn't ready for us yet. Sandy goes out. Nighttime, it's winter time. Early in the evening, kids when they're young, they don't know how to tell time. If it's dark, I'll put them to bed. Then you can start worrying about things. You can start pacing the floor and doing all that stuff, you know, and, and you can you can just get to, get to worrying. And so uh, I get the kids in bed. I'm sitting by the telephone, which sits by the mirror, so I can look at myself and cuss myself and be there. But in case she does call, I'm right there, you know. You got to cover all the bases, you know, and be be prepared. So I'm sitting there, and, and the the dog is over in the corner, kind of staring at me and thinking, "Oh, here we go. This guy's going nuts." <laughs> he was an Alanon dog, you know. I, I get mad at him, yell at him, "You son of a!" Rah, 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 and he just wag his tail at me, you know. He just detached. He didn't uh, wasn't emotionally involved at all. Anyway, um, my daughter, my little daughter, come to the top of the stairs, you know, and I'd hear her footsteps coming, and she'd say, Dad, come and tuck me into bed. So I'd go up with Chris, and I'd tuck her into bed, you know, and she'd say, um, where's Ma? Well, Ma's at a Stanley party, or Ma's at PTA or something. And I'd come downstairs, and she'd say, I'd hear her again come to the top of the stairs, and she'd say, Dad, there's a boogeyman in my, in my bedroom. So I'd go upstairs, Chris, there's no boogeyman. Look, we looked under the bed and we looked in the closet. She'd say, Dad, I miss Ma. Yeah, Chris, I miss Ma too. Third time it happened, she'd want to drink water. Put her back to bed. She'd say, Daddy, I want Mama. Where is she? And I'd say, Shut up! I'd scream in her face, spit flying, the teeth sticking out, just angry, angry, insane, sober, non-alcoholic person. The person that she looked up to the person that she loved, screaming in her face to tell her to shut up because she asked a question, because she made a statement, I want my mom. And I couldn't handle that. I couldn't deal with that. I was so embarrassed and so angry and so intimidated and just so uh, so frustrated that I'd scream at her. My son uh, is a year older than Chris. I, I picture him cowering in the, in the bathroom in the corner between the sink and the wall. And me standing over him with this long finger pointing at him like this, saying, what in the hell are you crying about? And him saying, I'm afraid of you, Dad. I said, afraid of me? What the hell you mean you're afraid of me? And I'm shaking my finger down in his face. God, who do the kids think are nuts? The alcoholic that comes home and gives them candy bars and pop? Or this sober, intense, Man full of rage that's six foot four and two hundred and thirty pounds. Who do the kids think is crazy? My kids told me that. 
Dad, you were much meaner than Ma ever was. <laughs> Dad, you were, you were like, you were crazy. Yeah, I was. But I couldn't accept that. Because I didn't see that at that time. That's an insane, insane way to live. You know, I loved my wife. I loved her, and I love her. I loved her, and I hated her. I loved her in the morning, and I hated her at night. I loved her ten minutes before she went out. I hated her ten minutes after she was gone. I hated her when she didn't come home. Sometimes a half hour after she was home, I loved her. And I'm thinking, you are nuts. How can you hate somebody and love somebody? How can that be possible? To love and to hate. What kind of phony are you? I used to fantasize. You know, uh, Linda had talked about somebody dying, fantasizing about death. I fantasized my wife dying. I used to have the whole thing down pat. I had pallbearers picked out and everything. And she bowled on, on Saturday nights and she went out to this, this bowling alley that was a couple miles from our house and had to cross a, this muddy river, kind of like the Ohio, you know. And I, I fantasized her driving a car into that river. And how contrite can I be because I eliminate my wife and get rid of that piece of crap car right at the same time, you know? Am I sick or what? But that's what I'd fantasize, and then she'd come home, and, and then I'd, after she'd do what alcoholics do before they come to bed, which can be pretty disgusting sometimes, she'd crawl in bed, and I'd put my hand on her hip, and, and we, we'd fall, she'd fall asleep. And I'd lay there, thinking about half an hour ago, you wish she was dead. Now you got your hand on her hip. What the hell's the matter with you? You nuts? Are you fake? Are you phony? You should leave her. I can't leave her. I'm afraid to leave her. You'd be better off without her. But I couldn't live without her. And all this stuff would go whirling around in my head, you know. God, I was going, I was going crazy. I was already nuts. I was pre-Alanon nuts. And, and this kind of stuff went on and on. One night Sandy came home, she said, Chuck, and she was totally in, inebriated. She came home and I heard something going on in the bathroom and I went in there and she had a bottle of pills. And I don't even know, I don't remember what kind they were. And she was trying to dump them in her hand, you know, and she, I don't know if she couldn't see her hand, but they were falling all over the floor. And I said, what are you doing? I'm sick of living. And she said, I tried to kill myself in the car tonight and I wasn't, I didn't have enough guts to do it. I said, are you crazy? Don't you know you got people that love you? I love you and the kids love you and your mother and dad love you. And I went on and on through this whole thing about people loving her. Is that selfish of you? Well, there was one other selfish person in that room. Because a half an hour before she came home and told me she tried to kill herself, I was uh, fantasizing her killing herself. Was I selfish? Did I think about the kids, the mother-in-law, the, all the people that love Sandy? I don't think so. I wasn't thinking about anybody. I just had this vision in my mind that made it possible for me to live through that nighttime. And then the next day I loved her. So I didn't have to have that fantasy the next day. And we'd go walking down a park in, in the Patterson Park and I'd be holding her hand. We'd be walking hand in hand and, and I loved her. So the insanity was there. Which way is this going? Am I crazy or, or what? And... um the one, the one time she came home and she said something to me, and I remember what it was, and she doesn't remember, and it's been, it's been probably 30 years ago, and I haven't told her. <laughs> I don't think I ever will. But uh, I slapped her across her face with my hand. Now, I've never, I've never slapped Sandy. 
I've, I've never been violent with hardly anybody, you know, physically violent. And, and uh, she said something to me, and I slapped her, and my wedding ring caught her in her eyelid, and her eyeball, her eyelid swelled up real big, you know, and it, and it looked like there was a marble under there, and it, a real mouse. And that was a Saturday night, and the next day we went to my mosque for, uh, for dinner. This tells you about alcoholism and the family disease and the merry-go-round called denial. And how many people it reaches out to it, it just spreads like quicksand. We went to my mother's house, there was our family, my mom and dad, my brother's family, nobody mentioned her black eye. <laughs> it was just like the emperor's new clothes. We talked about football, we talked about this, we talked about that. Nobody mentioned it. Just wasn't there. And then we went out about our lives. And that's just the way it was. Um, one night she called me up from the bar, or one night she told me, you call me at the bar and I'll come home. If you're man enough to call me, I'll come home. 10.30, give me a phone call. So 10.30, boy, I called her up, told her to come on home, you know. She got on the phone after the bartender got her. I said, Sam, it's 10.30. She said, so what? <laughs> I said, well, you told me to call you at 10.30 to come home. Well, I'm not coming home. I said, you got to. You know, I didn't know you can't say you can't or you got to or you, or you better not to an alcoholic. I've learned that, and even in sobriety, I've learned to temper those kinds of terms. But, uh, you know, I said, yeah, you've you got to come home. I'm not coming home. And then we hung up on each other. I don't know who hung up first. I used to say it was me, and she said it was her. Well, why argue about that? So we hung up. And, and that was a promise, and the promises were made. And I firmly believe the promises that were made. But you know something else? I didn't know Sandy believed the promises that were made until she started drinking. And then they went right out the window. They were gone. My life was in a toilet. It was terrible. I hated it. I used to, I worked midnights and I used to be at work and I'd worry all through, all through work. I could hardly do my job because I was constantly worried. You know, an alcoholic goes out and gets drunk, comes home and has a hangover. We worry from the time you get up, you go to bed with your motor running at 6,000 RPMs, and you get up and it's running 6,000 RPMs, and it's always worrying. And 99.9% .9 of the time, nothing ever happened. But that didn't stop me from worrying, because that's what I did. That's what I was used to. One of Sandy's relatives went into treatment. Part of the philosophy at that time was the family, me family members had to go to Al-Anon while their significant other was in treatment. So Sandy started going to Al-Anon. I thought, phew, this is all right, you know. She's going to that Al-Anon thing. I know they don't drink, and I, you know, I know they're related to Alcoholics Anonymous somehow, and, and uh, it's fantastic. So she's going to this Tuesday Al-Anon group at a place called 1609 John Avenue in Superior. And one night the phone rings, and it was okay because I was home watching the kids, and I was happy. I was petting the dog on the head, and, you know, being real cool that the kids stay up late. Phone rings, and it's, it's uh, my mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law talks like this. <laughs> so I answered the phone. Hello, Chuck. I said, oh, geez. <laughs> yes. Have you seen Sandy? Oh, man. The burn just came on. Do you remember the burn? The, the fear? The, 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 just the, this, this heat that enters your body when something bad has happened or you hear bad news, you know? It's just my, my ears burn when I hear stuff like that. I says... I thought she went to Al-Anon with you. And she said, well, she did go to Al-Anon with me. And during the uh, serenity prayer, 
she took her shoes and she took her that, that blue book that we used and she got up and she walked out the door and she went downstairs. And I, I didn't know what to say. And then my mother-in-law said, Chuck, I think Sandy went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and I, I, I don't know where this came from. I said, Ma, maybe that's where she's supposed to be. And that must have been where she's supposed to be because this month, sometime this month, I don't know when, I don't remember, Sandy has, has been going to Alcoholics Anonymous for 21 years and never not gone to Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope that applause is for me for putting up with a sober alcoholic for 21 years. <laughs> so, all right, hey, my, my, my alcoholic, you know, and some of us now have, can say, my alcoholic, my alcoholic started going to A&A. Holy smokes, that's great. You know, she's going to Alcoholics Anonymous now. Boy, when I come home, there's going to be supper on the table. <laughs> you guys are way ahead of me on this one. My shorts are going to be turned right side out. My dresser drawer will not be the dryer. The socks will be mated. Ah, it's going to be great. Having her home at night, sitting there, scratching my back. Ah, wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful, all right. Come to pick me up at work, because she had to have the car. She come pick me up at work. <laughs> I said, Sam, what's the matter? You know you shouldn't drive when you're crying. <laughs> I just can't stand it. I said, what? Don't be around those people so much. They're depressing. <laughs> so she'd come by, you know, in a couple of days or whatever, and she'd stop and pick me up from work. Oh, oh boy, oh, she'd be happy, you know, and she'd have coke for me, you know, and she'd be eating something. I said, Sam, what's going on? I'm happy, joyous, and free. I'm an alcoholic, you know. Jesus. It was the roller coaster, up and down, up and down. And I had, you know, She's listening to these doggone AA tapes. God almighty, I'd have to go and sit and look at this little black box with the AA tape in it, you know, Angelie from Kankakee or something, and jeez, I didn't want to be there. And they were smoking cigarettes by the box full, you know, and guys that have three or four of them in their mouth. And, and then the one neighbor, he belonged to AA, he'd take her to meetings. I didn't care for that. He was my best friend, but you know how best friends are, especially them alcoholic best friends. <laughs> told me one time I was nuts because I chose not to drink. He says, I can't drink. You choose not to drink. You're crazy. <laughs> I didn't understand that at that time. Anyway, so she's going to these Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and she's going, and she's telling me, go to Al-Anon, Chuck. Go to Al-Anon, Chuck. Don't tell me to go to Al-Anon. I'm not sitting in a room full of old ladies listening to them doing whatever it is they do. I read Antlanders. I know how Al-Anon works. So... Then she did something that, that, that really, it, an alcoholic woman told her, shut up about Eleanor. Don't even talk to him about it. Don't talk about AA. You keep doing what you're doing for you and let him sink or swim. Holy moly, you know, I mean, she comes home from this meeting and I'm saying, well, how was your meeting? Oh, it was a great meeting. Chucky's uh, best friend's dad was there. Who's that? I can't tell you. It's anonymous. <laughs> Well, you should have seen who went up the stairs to Ellen on me and go, oh, I gave her such a big hug. Well, who is that? I can't tell you that. It's anonymous. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Then she's got this sponsor. Who's your sponsor? Diane. I went to an open Ellen on meeting one time to meet this Diane. Sandy saw her sitting across the table from her and she had a smile on her face and she looked angelic and, and, and I went in and she says, you remember Diane? 
Holy cripes did I remember Diane. We grew up in the north end of town, wrong side of the tracks, tough bars. Diane was in them tough bars, practicing detachment. She'd rip a guy's arm off and beat him over the head with it. That's a Sandy spiritual advisor. God. I used to go to sleep with her wearing an aluminum cup. I was afraid of what was going to happen while I was sleeping. Jesus. She was bad. Anyway, we're sitting at the picnic table one day, knees to knees on the bench. Sandy looks at me and she says, uh, Chuck, I'm going to be going into treatment pretty soon in a couple of months, in, or in a month. And she says, you know, I don't know if we'll be together when we get when I get out. Holy cripes! I thought, well, what are you talking about? We've been sober for like six weeks. We had 13 years active alcoholism. Look at the strides that we're taking. I mean, you're going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm trying to live with you, and we're not fighting as much, and I think things are fine. The kids don't run away from me anymore. You know, heck, this is good. She's, but we don't know one another. We don't know one another sober. And then she said something else in that time span. I don't remember exactly when it was. She said, my sobriety is number one. My rear end? Don't tell me. I'm number one. I should be the first on your list, then followed by the kids, and then whatever else you want. I couldn't understand. Here she was. She was, she was turning her life and her will over to the care of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's not right. Boy, that ticked me off. Well, you know what happened then? I had this divine inspiration. It was a Tuesday night. I thought, I'm going to go to Al-Anon. Because I want to learn those steps, and I want to learn those traditions, and I want to get a sponsor, and I want to learn detachment. Bullshit. I wanted to go to Al-Anon to get her off my back so that she'd stay with me, that she could see that I was trying to work the program, whatever that meant. Because that's what she talked about, working this program. I didn't know what that what that meant. So, first Al-Anon meeting. When I was four years old, I was in kindergarten. First day of kindergarten. My ma had me by the hand, took me up the steps of John Erickson's school in Superior, knocked on the kindergarten door, and this little old lady opened the door, and my mom said, Chucky, you're going to school in there, and I'm going home. And she left me. Here I am, 34 years old, whatever I was at the time, walking up the door, uh, the, the steps to 1609 John Avenue Superior, an Alamo club that was this big, beautiful house, old house. Sandy's got me by the hand, brought me inside that door, pointed at that oak staircase that led upstairs. She said, Chuck, I'm going in here to a meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. Alanon's up those stairs, down the hallway, third door on the left. Jesus, I wanted to be anybody and anywhere else at that time than there. I went up those steps because I couldn't back out. I had a lot of pride. didn't have any self-esteem, just had a lot of pride. I went up those steps, I walked down that hallway, I walked up to that door, and it was hard to read the Alanon sign because the smoke was so damn thick you could only see about three feet above the door, bottom of the door, you know. Walked over that thing, and I could hear this. What is this? Here's what was coming from behind that door. They were going, I thought, Jesus, I don't want to be in there. Anywhere. Well, I thought, well, I told her I'd go. I'm a man of my word. I do have honor, you know. So I went to open up the door, and I, honest to God, this is just what happened. It's an old house, a big old door. 
the top of the door was stuck, the bottom of the door would open. So I'm pushing, and the door's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I gave it a push, and I fell right in the middle of that room, and all these women go, oh, it's another man, it's another man, come on in, come on in. Standing in the middle of that room with my wife passing before my eyes, the thought I had was, what the hell did you do with the other guy? <laughs> they did say another man. I knew there had to be one there someplace. And there was a little guy in there, a little tiny guy, gray-haired. I went over and sat next to him, and he looked, he looked like Goliath when I was sitting. The stuff went around, this meeting went around, and I don't remember what was shared. I know those people seemed to know a lot about what was inside of me, things that I hadn't talked to anybody about. These people knew about it. These people shared about it. And they were, they were mostly, well, they were all women except for that one little guy. And I joke about the Al-Anon women and I tell stories about it, you know, and I just love them to death because men's meetings, women's meetings, it don't matter. We're Al-Anons. Our life's been affected by somebody else's drinking. I don't care if it's your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, or, or whatever. We're together because our lives have been affected. And those women had the same stuff going on inside of me. I told you about wanting Sandy dead. One of the first things I heard about was a woman who's high in the ranks, social ranks, and superior, saying, I'd have pushed that son of a bitch down the stairs, but he probably would have broke his leg, and I'd have to care for him for the rest of my life. I thought, I've come home. The old guy said he's going to have the next meeting. He's going to have this meeting and, and take the meeting. And so I, I came back the next week, and I listened to what he had to say, and he talked about the insanity of, of his life with his wife. And I thought, if that guy can stand there and talk about that and smile like that and talk about these sponsor things and stuff like that, hey, I could do this. I can make this. Never saw the old guy again. He was uh, working for the census in 1980, and that's the last time I ever saw him. He was gone. He had been in town for just a couple of weeks doing the census, and he left. But I can't help think that my higher power had him sitting there for when I came through that door. And, and maybe some of you disagree with me, but I don't care. You know, I talk about my higher power, the God of my understanding, and I think he puts people in my life. He certainly puts you people in my life today. He does it. Why can't he do that? He's my higher power. If he's the, if he's the sovereign being, that's what can happen. Miracles can happen in this fellowship, and they happen every day. Oh, all right, I'm going to Al-Anon. Sandy's getting ready to go into treatment. She goes through treatment. No, there was some interesting stuff that happened there. I won't get into that. Other than to say she wanted to come home. She said she was crazy and not alcoholic. She wanted to come home. I had just enough Al-Anon in me to say, you can't, we can't do it. I'm not going back. You come home like you are, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to stick around. I won't put up with it. And she got mad at me and uttered a profanity and turned around and walked away from me in that treatment center. And I went home and I cried all night long. But now I look back and think, what a relief that was. What a, what a, what a growth that was. Sandy gets out of treatment, comes home. We're sitting in the backyard one day and it's June, early June, sitting out there enjoying the warmth and, and, and the closeness that we now have and, and uh, trying to get to know one another. Our neighbor comes over with a bottle or with a jug of balloon wine, a gallon of balloon wine. You know what balloon wine is? You put this stuff in a bottle, and you put a, a, a balloon or something that looks like a balloon on top of it. You set it on top of your refrigerator, and this, this thing swells up, and, you know, expands. And then when the wine is done, the balloon deflates, and all the wine's done. She comes over to us and says, Chuck, Sandy, here, have a glass of wine. Six weeks, eight weeks sober. I looked at Sandy, and she looked at me, and, and uh, she says, 
What she read in my eyes was, you better not. <laughs> that wasn't what was in my eyes. What was in my eyes is, oh, God, no. God, no! I wasn't talking to God. I was talking to myself, and I was mentally talking to her. And I thought, here we go. And we took that glass of wine, and we could not say, we do not drink. Sandy drank that glass of wine, and within a short time, she asked me to go get her a 12-pack. <laughs> Which I think is rather interesting, that I should go get her the 12-pack. I says, no, uh-uh. Chuck, she says, I want to get drunk. I said, Sandy, I cannot understand you wanting to get drunk. I do not understand that. You're an alcoholic. You say you want to get drunk. Sandy, call your sponsor. I'm not responsible for you. And I burst out bawling. And she burst out bawling. And we held one another. And she called that, that lady. That, that lady that used to rip people's arms off. She called, and that lady was there. Bingo! Just like that, she came and she took Sandy in her big arms and let her out the door, and, and they went someplace wherever pig, uh, sponsors take their pigeons. And, and Sandy hasn't had a drink since that day. It was May 18th, 1980, and, 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 and since that day, she hasn't, she hasn't drank alcohol, and I think that's just marvelous. And, and for, I thank you people so much for me being able to say that. So fresh in this program to be able to say, Sandy, I'm not responsible for you. What a remarkable thing. What a remarkable thing. I started going to Al-Anon, you know, but I got, I got kind of tired of it. It got kind of old, you know, so, um, I'm not doing nothing. I wasn't practicing the steps. I wasn't looking at these traditions. All I was doing was going to meetings. And anything you guys were saying, I was taking in. Some of it was okay. Some of it was great. Some of it I didn't care about. And it started getting stale, and, and somebody said, Chuck, you better get yourself a sponsor. So I did. I got a sponsor, and, and uh, we started going through the steps together, and then he left. He just he was just gone. It's like he disappeared into thin air. Uh, one Tuesday night, I was meeting with him, and I haven't seen him since. That's like 20 years ago. I don't know where he went. Maybe he went down to those damn alcoholic meetings. I never go in there and look around. <laughs> but... Um, I got myself another sponsor, and he was a guy that went through a lot of stuff, the same as me. He was a double winner, uh, alcoholic. He belonged to AA, and he was also an Al-Anon member. And uh, we sponsored one another, actually, is what we did. And we got along fine. And, and when I had the crisis, when Sandy and I had the crisis in our marriage, he was there for me. And, and I did my fourth step. And, and I remember doing my fourth step and writing on a legal pad, and I was doing it in my truck at work. And... Things were going good. We had we had kind of uh, gotten back together. Um, we loved one another. Things were kind of going okay. And I thought, I don't have to finish this. I don't want to keep going on this. I can put this down and it'll be okay. And some a guy at a meeting one time said, Chuck, remember. I didn't say Chuck, but he says, remember, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I thought, what the hell is that about? I didn't understand that. All of a sudden, that light came on in my head when I was sitting in that truck ready to put down my ink pen. If nothing changes, nothing changes. And nothing had changed. I was working my putting my fourth step together. That's not it. It doesn't stop there. And suddenly that came to me. So I, I continued on. I took my fifth with my sponsor and, and, and got down on my knees with my sponsor and, and said the seventh step and, and continued, made that list, you know, did what I had to do. And, and then, only then, could we start getting back together. Can I look at that as saying, I did what I had to do. I didn't put it down. I'm so grateful for that today that I didn't put that down. I sponsor a lot of guys, and uh, 
Some of my sponsors, I really like three or four, I, I meet with every week and we talk about stuff, we work the steps. Some people I sponsor, I, I, I hardly remember their names anymore. <laughs> I was sitting at a meeting one time and this guy says, well, my sponsor said, and I thought, I'm a sponsor, but I sure don't remember saying that, you know. I don't know if I'm still a sponsor or not. Um, but it's so important for me to, to share, as I said before, that the liabilities that I had are no assets. That I have no secrets. I don't keep secrets in my heart anymore. That I'm able to share them with the guys I sponsor. And that just means so much to me to be able to sit and listen to these guys and, and maybe share my experience, strength, and hope with them. Um, I have a sponsor. He's a little guy that fits right about here. He's bald-headed. He's a Frenchman like I am, but that's about where our similarities end. He's a romantic kind of guy. He's just, you know, he's like David Niven, you know. I'm sure some of you remember David Niven. He has this little pencil thin mustache of about 30 hairs across his upper lip and, and uh, he wears a little beret, you know. And, and, and our, our philosophies on life are not always the same. But he's my sponsor and I love him dearly. And, and I, I was suffering from some um, dis- short-term disability and, and I wasn't able to uh, get around very easily. And one day he showed up at the house. He says, I'm taking you out to the lake. We're spending the day together. Went out to his cabin. We just sat, and he had brought lunch, you know, and God, it was so wonderful. Here's this guy that's going to go out of his way to help me. He, he took time out of his own life to help me. What a marvelous thing. We're sitting at an open al meeting one night. We had It was our 24th anniversary, I believe. We're sitting at this open al meeting. A friend of ours is going to be speaking there. We went out to supper, go to the al meeting. We were going to go home and, and, and make love. If you're new in this fellowship and you love somebody, believe that you don't know one another sober. Sandy and I, Sandy hit the nail right on the head. We didn't know one another sober. This is me, no, it's only me. Please believe this. I felt like my wife didn't find me attractive unless she was drinking. That's how much self-esteem I had. So all of a sudden there's no alcohol involved. I didn't think she found me attractive. It took time and patience on both of our parts in this fellowship to finally accept one another as we are and be able to make love. To just to be able to make love. To have intimacy with one another. It's a whole new ball game. But it's worth the wait. Anyway, we're going to go home and we're going to this meeting then we're going home and we're going to have a romantic evening at home. Our Alan, our neighbor, stops, comes in between the two of us and says, Sandy, your dad's been injured in a car accident. You better go to the hospital. And me and my customary denial, oh, it's probably nothing. Sandy says, it's something. It's something. Get to the hospital. Well, my father-in-law had been crossing the street on Tower Avenue in Superior and he was struck and killed by a car. Boom! He's gone from our lives. This, this jug, plug in the jug alcoholic, 40 years as a plug in the jug, just a, just a conflict kind of guy. I mean, you loved him, you hated him. He, he was just full of life. Boom! Walking across the street to get a can of snuff and he got struck and killed by a car. You alcoholic anonymous people and you anonymous people came to us like you would. I mean, it, you were just there. You offered to watch our kids. You brought us food. You hugged us. You cried with us. You understood. You listened. You AA people, you anonymous people did that for us. That's what the fellowship's all about. I think sometimes that I forget that it's about caring and sharing and, and fellowship which means a community of spirit. That's what Al-Anon is all about. 
Dave was there for me. My sponsor was there for me. A few months later, I get a phone call. It was in April. I get a phone call. It's Dave. Chuck, buddy, I need you. I sure, Dave. What do you need? He says, I, I, I've got to talk to you. I need you to come over. He says, I've lost Justin. I said, what, what do you mean you lost Justin? Well, Justin was one day into a daycare, a day treatment center. 15-year-old kid, his, his youngest kid. He came home and he hung himself in his dad's bedroom. I need you, buddy. So I went over to Dave's fiance's house. And on the way over there, I'm praying, God, I don't know about this. I've never been through this before. I don't know what to say. Please, please work through me. I got over to Dave's house. I didn't have to do anything. I just listened. He cried and he laughed and he was angry. He needed somebody to talk to. Not to have the answers. I didn't have to have the answers. He just shared himself with me. What was going on in him. That's what Al-Anon is all about. And again, the AA people, by the time that, that the night was over, there was AA people there. There was Al-Anon people there. And folks, if you're new in the fellowship, that's what the program is about. We love one another in a very special way. That's what it's about. I have three kids. One's 33, or yeah, 33, one's 32, and one's going to be turning 29 in about three days. My 29-year-old always professed that he'd never lived to see 20 years old. His name is Kurt. Kurt was our last kid, and he was the roughest kid, and he was skipping school, and he was using drugs. 13 years old, he was drunk. Drunk in a tent at 13, puked all over, and, and I said in my Al-Anon way, ah, it'll probably never happen again. Sandy in her alcoholic way said, it's going to happen again, and again, and again, and again. And it did happen again and again and again and again. He grew up 18 years old, senior in high school, long, straggly blonde hair, motorcycle jacket, engineer boots, scared of life, scared to die, using drugs on a daily basis, alcohol, cigarettes, the, the whole nine yards, stealing from us. His friends were stealing from us. We put a, be a deadbolt lock on our bedroom door so we could keep our valuables safe. And finally one day we couldn't take it anymore and we put him into an adolescent treatment center. Turned 18 in that center and walked out. He said, Dad, I want to come home again. I said, well, you can come home again, sure, as long as you don't use. And that lasted about a week and he started using again. And after talking it over with Sandy and after I, we talked it over with our sponsors, we met Kurt at the back door one night. We had changed the locks on the doors. I was holding his pillow. Sandy's holding his sleeping bag. He came through the door, looked at us, and I said, Kurt, you're not welcome in our home anymore under the circumstances. You're kicking me out, he said. I said, no, we're not kicking you out. You chose by your behavior not to live here anymore. You're using, and we won't put up with it. You've got to leave, and it's got to be now. He said, Dad, and this is February. Dad, where am I going to sleep? Under the bridge? I said, son, I don't know where you're going to sleep, but you're not going to sleep here this night. We can't allow that. He said, goodbye, Dad. I love you. I said, bye, son. I love you, too. Shut the door softly, and away he went into the night. Sandy and I just cried. We held one another and cried. The next day he calls up. He's up in Minnesota someplace. Dad? Yeah. Hi. Hi. You know, it's like, he never gets excited about nothing. Hi. That's where are you? 
Minnesota. How did you get there? I don't know. Spend the night there. Yeah. Where are you going to be tonight? I don't know. For the next year and a half, Kurt lived on the streets of Superior. I'd be driving down Tower Avenue on the main street of Superior and I'd see my son, the one child that we had that we conceived in love, in sobriety, walking down the street, higher than a kite, disheveled blonde hair hanging down below his shoulders, his motorcycle jacket, and his ripped and torn pants. And I'd look the other way. My father died during that time. I went and got Kurt, brought him home. He refused to clean up for the funeral. Let him go anyway, and then sent him back out on the streets again. He came home. He said, Dad, I think I'm sick. I want to come home. I don't want to die. I'm 20 years old. I said, you can come home if you don't use. I'm not going to use anymore, Dad. Can I go to the doctor? Yeah, Kurt, you can go to the doctor. He had hepatitis. Sharing a needle. Doctor said, You're close to dying, kid. I know that, he said. And he quit. He quit drinking. He quit smoking cigarettes. He quit smoking dope. He quit using drugs. He quit everything. He just stopped. And that's like six years ago. Seven. Yeah, it's quite now. It's about eight or nine years ago. And he hasn't touched anything since. He professed to have a higher power, but he wouldn't go to meetings. He professed to have a spiritual experience, but he wouldn't go to meetings. That kid had quit high school in his senior year. He went back and he got his GED. And then uh, information started coming from college. He says, Kurt, you going to college? I'm thinking about it. Graduated uh, summa cum laude, or however they say it. 3.8 something grade average. Information starts coming. Kurt, what are you doing now? I'm going to graduate school. And he went, he had a residency out in Vermont for six months and he came back from that. He's, now he's going to graduate in May, uh, Master of Fine Arts in, uh, Claremont, California. Now who's responsible for that? Was it the people of Alcoholics Anonymous? Was it the people of Anonymous? Certainly wasn't Sandy or I. You people made it possible for us to make decisions and be responsible for our decisions and to make healthy decisions. You guys did that. And we're eternally grateful for what you've done for us in that respect. I was talking to Kurt the other day on the phone, and I mentioned that I had shared that part of my story. And you know what he said to me? Dad, I don't hardly remember any of that stuff. But I remember it. I remember you people helping us. I remember you people being there for us. And love the person hate the behavior. You Elanon people taught me that. That's how I could love Sandy one minute and hate her the next. I didn't hate her. I hated the behavior. And you people in Elanon taught me that. That's what I love and that's what I hate. I was able to love my son enough to say you can't stay here anymore and hate that behavior. What a learning experience that is. That is so fantastic. You people did that for me. I have a story about food also. Uh, somebody else had a story about food earlier today. I work, I do the cooking. Sandy doesn't cook, hardly ever. I do the cooking and I'm a good cook. So, we're gonna have, uh, I was working one day, days, I didn't work days very often. I'm, I'm working days and I'm up from work and Sandy's got meatloaf, 
corn on the cob, mashed potatoes and gravy, had biscuits, you know, man, it was going to be wonderful. She says, my love, when Sandy says my love to me, I just melt. She says, my love, go sit out on the porch, I'll bring you your supper. And we have this glass dim porch with, with uh, knotty pine and all that stuff. So I went in there and sat down at this little table just made for two people with a couple of chairs there. And we sat down. Sandy brings me my mashed potatoes and, and meatloaf and corn on the cob and everything. We sit down and we start eating. I'm looking at her, you know, beautiful lady. Start buttering my corn. Sandy starts buttering her corn. All of a sudden, one of us says, uh, that's not the way you butter corn. Alright, and then the other one says, well, that's the way I butter corn. I, you know, you pull it through the, the quarter of butter twisting the corn cob. And the other one says, no, you take a pad of butter on your fork and you rotate the cob and then you do this. And the other one says, well, no, you're making a mess. And the other one says, well, you're the one that told me how to do this corn in the first place. I'm just doing what you told me. By this time I had kernels of corn spitting out of my mouth, you know, because I was, I was a little excited. I was a little bit... So uh, anyway, this argument was going nowhere, so I thought I'd do the Alamon thing. I took my cob of corn, I threw that sucker down in the middle of my mashed potatoes, and I said, the hell with you! And I got up and I detached. I went out. <laughs> went down the bay, walked down the bay to cool off, and there was a blue Huron down there, and I saw one on our way here when, when, uh, when Bob was giving us a ride, beautiful blue Huron. Well, there was one down the bay, and that sucker, he cracked his neck into an S shape, and boom, he went down, he grabbed this fish, and he had his supper, I didn't have mine, you know. And I laughed about that. I thought, you're, you're a pretty funny guy, you know. That, that was this corn on the cob, for God's sake. You're arguing about corn on the cob. But I wasn't going to give in that easy. That I'm not telling her I'm sorry. I'm going. So I kept on walking, and I walked to the river where I wanted Sandy to drown in. I walked there, and, and uh, I stood there, and I'm looking at the water, you know, and I'm standing on the railroad bridge, and... And this kid's got a black lab down there, and he's throwing a stick in the water, and the dog's getting it and coming back. And, oh, that's great. And I was consciously thinking Elanon. I was consciously thinking about steps, you know. And, and, and I said the serenity prayer, and it grabbed me the serenity, you know. And I'm thinking about this stuff. And I, I got to go home. I said, this is this is silly. You know, I'll go home, and Sandy and I will make amends with one another. And I, I was pretty certain that that's the way it would be. And so I felt good. Hey, Alanon works again, you know, the wonders of Alanon. Ride in and give you that silver bullet and ride off into the sunset, you know. And so I'm turning around to come back and all of a sudden I hear this fire truck and uh, goes by over the bridge and the ambulance goes over the bridge, cop car. And just for a, st- a split second I thought, I hope the hell she thinks I jumped in that river and they're coming to pull me out, you know. And then I realized that my serenity is subject to change without notice. You know, it's like a box of cornflakes or something. I mean, it, it changes. If you don't work on it, it'll change, you know. So... I came back home and I walked, turned around and walked back. I, I was laughing about, you know, myself and I came walking in the house and she's at the sink by this time and she says, hello my love, did you have a good walk? Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. I told her what I had seen and I said, you know, I, I want to make amends for my behavior in, in our situation uh, with, with supper. I said, I, I'm sorry for the way I acted. I, I shouldn't have talked to you that way. She says, me too. I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, you know, and, and we made our we made our amends and we made our apologies. And she says, "Would you like my supper? Would you would you like your supper?" I said, "Yeah." So she goes in the refrigerator. She pulls out this dish that's got a saran wrap teepee on it. The the cob of corn was still stuck straight down the mashed potatoes, and she just covered it up, folded it all around. You know, she says, "Here, put it in the microwave." You know? <laughs> so I, I I did that, and I, I didn't eat the corn. I thought enough is enough on the corn thing. I don't want to stretch this, but. That's what Alvin's about. 
You know, that's why I go to Al-Anon, because I have these fits of insanity once in a while, and you guys help me take care of that, and, and I enjoy it. It's fun being in Al-Anon. It's actually fun. And, and so, to paraphrase uh, a statement that was made uh, in Al-Anon Faces Alcoholism, uh, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon for showing me God, for, for showing me Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thank Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous for showing me God, because you guys have been a miracle in my life. You've been a miracle in our life. And, and I, I certainly thank you for having me here today and putting up with me. Thank you very much. Uh, on behalf